BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod. It's Friday, November 5, about 8.30 a.m. in Washington. And it's been a wild week. I know you can't wait to hear what our guests on today's roundtable have to say about it. The political news, of course, was dominated by stunning results in Virginia, where Republicans swept the table, reversing Virginia's recent tilt blue and electing a Republican governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, and House of Delegates. Democrats barely missed the same fate up in New Jersey, where a Democratic incumbent, Phil Murphy, was behind all night, but managed to squeak out a one-point lead in the end to hold on to his job. A little better news for Democrats among big city mayors, though not, not such good news for progressive Democrats. So what does it all mean? What are the national implications? What impact will Tuesday's returns have on the 2022 midterms? And are the results good or bad for President Biden's agenda? Well, here today with their analysis and insights, Lauren Burke, host of the Burke File podcast and writer for Black Press USA and The Guardian. Hello, Lauren. How are you, Bill? And a Virginia native, or Virginia resident, I should say, at any rate. Good. Uh, Jason Dick, deputy editor, CQ Roll Call, and the host of Political Theater Podcast. Hi, Jason. Morning. And I'd like to note I uh, lived in Alexandria for a year and a half at one point. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Very good. And Alex Seitzwald. Uh, Alex, I'm not sure you have your own podcast. If so, you can uh, speak up here. But Alex is, of course, senior digital politics reporter for NBC News. Hi, Alex. Hey, Bill. Uh, I can, I'd like to say I can see Virginia from my house, but but not quite. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Sarah Palin. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of Virginia, we got to start there. I must say about a month ago, I uh, was talking to a senior executive of the Carlisle Group, and I said, so you must have known, you must know this guy, Glenn Youngkin. Tell me about him. I mean, like, who is he? What's he all about? And the guy just said, well, he's a nice guy, but it's not even worth talking about because there's no way he's going to win. Hello. A lot of people thought about that until Tuesday. Let's just go around the table. Alex, what the hell happened? Well, uh, sort of, you know, if you want to pull back 100,000 feet, sort of what we expected, which is uh, the the kind of counter-cyclical nature of American politics. Uh, political scientists call it the thermostatic backlash. You know, whoever's in power tends to get voted out of power. So we should have we should have expected it. Is that what you're saying? I mean, we, I I think I'm just trying to temper a little bit of expectations right at yeah, the top here. Right. That said, I mean, it's it's definitely bad news for Democrats. This is a state that Biden won just last year by ten points. It's been trending their direction. Uh, Ralph Northam, the the outgoing Democratic governor, called it quote, officially blue after Democrats retook 
the state legislature two years ago. Um, and what happened was a collapse across the board. And that's that this is the really troubling part for Democrats. They their numbers in the rural areas continued to plummet, you know, <clears throat> not a huge surprise, but it matters if you lose by 30 points or you lose by 35 or 40 points. Um, and they had been trading those rural votes for suburban votes, which would be fine, except that the suburban voters didn't show up. And then also uh, some of their base voters, like African-American voters, and th there's fewer Latino voters in Virginia, but uh, there's some evidence that turnout was down there. So just across the board, uh, fairly ugly picture for Democrats that could spell real trouble for them next year if it continues. Yeah, we'll get into the prognostication and what it means in the future. But Lauren, uh, the president was asked, uh, do you think, why do the people, so many people who voted for you not vote for Terry McAuliffe? Um, here was uh, Biden's take on the dissatisfaction. People want us to get things done. And that's why I'm continuing to push very hard for the Democratic Party to move along and pass my infrastructure bill and my Build Back Better bill. Do you think that was a factor, Lauren? Uh, I think it was a factor, but I don't think it was as much as a factor as people would like to believe. I think the uh, I think what this is is a collision of a few things. One is that uh, you know Terry McAuliffe is really representative of a Democratic Party of the 1990s that doesn't fit particularly good with the era of politicians that we have, which is a little bit more progressive and a little bit more uh, quick to speak truth to power, a little bit more AOC, a little bit more Cori Bush in Virginia, which is a 20% black state that matters. It also matters that he ran against three African-Americans in the primary. Uh, and there hmm. was no sort of moment there of unity of saying, hey, I know I'm stopping the next generation. Remembering that Terry McAuliffe is 64 years old and would turn 65 early next year. Uh, the next oldest person running is, was like, you know, 48 a state senator named Jennifer McClellan. And uh, I, I think that played a factor. I think what we're going to find is that black voters, uh, we were hearing this all campaign, so it wasn't surprising. We're going to find that black voters were not excited. That's that's There's that. Uh, then there's just the fact that uh, Virginia, um, there's a fact that, that Virginia is changing. Yes, it's becoming bluer, but I think Terry McAuliffe's campaign was was not good. And Glenn Youngkin's campaign was excellent. It was presidential level. I went to six or seven events, uh, Newport News, Norfolk, Chesterfield, and I went to a few uh, Terry McAuliffe events. And I'm looking at a presidential campaign when I'm looking at Glenn Youngkin's campaign, and I'm looking at a city council race with Terry McAuliffe. I think they thought they were going to walk into it. I think they thought they were going to be running against a state senator who is a Trump clone named uh, Amanda Chase. And they were wrong, and they and they really, really lost badly. Of course, as everybody knows, they lost all three offices, including an attorney general named Mark Herring that absolutely nobody expected to lose. Right. And so that was a shocking evening, as I don't need to say. It seems also, Jason, that uh, McAuliffe underestimated or misrepresented or misestimated, whatever the George Bush phrase was, um, the issue of public education of schools and parental concern. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I want to second Lauren's, you know, statement that the McAuliffe campaign was, you know, unbelievably unstirring. <laughs> uh, th that um, I mean, if, if you were trying, if you were looking for what he stood for, uh, you, you were going to look for a long time and it did have a very, you know, Hillary Clinton 2016 vibe to it. Um, 
And and but I think that what you what you're saying, Bill, is absolutely right. That public education, and particularly, um, you know, the, this issue that Republicans, the Republican Party, has made this an issue at the at the congressional level too. You see this with with House Republicans going after Merrick Garland uh, about his memo, you know, to to for the FBI to you know sort of make sure that parents who are threatening school board members would be investigated. Um, You know, this is an issue that is not going to go away. The Republicans I thought played it uh, like, like they're entitled to, you know, like there are very few rules about how you can uh, you know, what strategies and and so forth you deploy. And McAuliffe had no answer for it. And I mean, I have, I have some sympathy, you know, for how complicated this kind of stuff can be and, and how, passionate, uh, you know, parents can be. I'm a former teacher myself. I've been, uh, uh, you know, when I was teaching at the university level, I had a student have her parent call the university president about something that I had uh, shown them in, in a class about the media. Uh, so I have some sympathy, but like you have to be able to answer and, and countercharge if you want to survive in politics. And McAuliffe had really no answers. Was it fair, you know, that some of his comments uh, about, curriculum were taken out of context, like, well, in politics, yes, and you have to be able to answer it, and they had no answer for it. So, Alex, uh, if there were, if there was a central theme to to McAuliffe's campaign, and as a resident of Washington, I felt like I might as well have been living in Virginia, because all I saw for, all any of us saw for a month, right, were ads for Yunkin and, and McAuliffe, but from what I saw, the McAuliffe campaign, the central theme was uh, Yunkin Trump, Yunkin Trump. Right. Uh, they even put up signs in Virginia, phony signs, Yunkin, Yunkin, Trump, uh, trying to make Trump the boogeyman of 2021. Didn't work, Alex. No, it didn't work at all. Uh, and I think that's because Glenn Yunkin refused to play the part. I think they had seen what just happened in California, where uh, Gavin Newsom was faced with a similar issue in the recall of the base not being excited, you know, yep. uh, resistance to people in power. But then <clears throat> the Republican opponent, Larry Elder, played the part perfectly. And he really, you know, he has a, was a 20-year record as a talk radio host. There was an enormous amount of information they could pull on. So it was easy to portray him as a mini Trump voters looked at at uh, Larry Elder's record, and they said, yeah, that guy is kind of Trumpy. But Glenn Youngkin did not fit the bill at all. Uh, he was fresh to politics. He spoke in this kind of MBA consultant ease. He seemed like uh, like a nice guy. And I, I mean, I even just a small thing, but he would, uh, uh, when he would talk to reporters, he would begin by thanking them for the job they're doing, thanking them for coming out and saying how important it is to have a free press in this country. Uh, you know, some buttering up of the refs, but also I think that was such a central part of Trump's message, you know, beating up on the media. I think that was a strategically savvy move uh, by the Yunkin campaign here. So it seemed like McAuliffe was was hoping that uh, Amanda Chase, as Lauren said, would win the Republican primary, and they but they just kept the same playbook that they were going to use against her to run against Glenn Youngkin when uh, they didn't really talk about policy. They didn't talk about very much about what McAuliffe had done when he was governor himself. He, After all, he had held mm-hmm. his job before. And they didn't use uh, the kind of obvious thing there, which was Youngkin was a private equity guy. They Democrats ran a very successful <laughs> campaign against another private equity guy named Mitt Romney. And uh, they, they could have used that. But McAuliffe would have been a, a tough messenger on it because he, it turned out, was himself an investor in the Carlyle Group. Uh, and Lauren, I want to go back to the issue of the, the schools, too, because um, you know, we know that there was a flap about this one woman who didn't her, her son was so upset when he read Toni Morrison's Beloved, right? And she was using that as an example why parents 
uh, had to be able to influence, if not dictate, what's taught and in the classroom, what books are even read. And then, of course, there was the issue of critical race theory. I'd like to play a little clip. Here's a reporter with an exchange with a Yunkin supporter on election day about what the key issue for him was in this race. I think this is a very uh, illustrative little exchange. What's the most important issue in the governor's race here in Virginia? Getting back to the basics of teaching children, not teaching them critical race theory. And, uh, and, and what is critical race theory? Well, I'm not going to get into the specifics of it because I don't understand it that much. But it's something that I don't, the, what little bit that I know I don't care for. And, and what have you heard that, that you don't, well, that you I'm don't not, like? Well, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I don't... Uh, I don't, I don't have that much knowledge on it, but okay. it's something that I'm not, that I don't care for. With all of that ignorance, nevertheless, Lauren, it became a powerful issue. Right. I, well, I mean, the Yunkin campaign and the Republican Party writ large are just very good at messaging shorthand. And this is what I mean by when I say that McAuliffe was running a 1990 style campaign with regard to his communications. I mean, you know, when we talk about critical race theory, and, and Terry McAuliffe said over and over again that it's not taught in Virginia, he is technically correct. We understand that. They're not teaching some, you know, law class uh, in, in K through 12 in Virginia. What, what the Republicans are talking about is diversity and equity issues. They're talking about wokeism. They're talking about something else. And so when Glenn Youngkin went up there and said, I'm going to stop critical race theory, they know the shorthand of what he's talking about. And everybody else in the media and the McAuliffe campaign are talking about something else, thinking that that matters. Well, what matters is what influences the voters, <laughs> right? Yeah. So they totally, you know, missed that and allowed the Yunkin campaign to beat up on them for three and four weeks over that and McAuliffe's gaffe at the Nova Chamber of Commerce uh, debate with regard to parents not being involved in schools. Again, right. he's techni technically correct that parents are not to be walking into the library of school and taking Beloved off the shelf. We all understand that. But what what we're talking about is just basic communications and what people hear when they say when they hear a politician say that they should not be involved in their kids schooling is that's what they hear. So the Democratic Party needs to get real about 2021 messaging and the digital era that we live in. And this campaign was a perfect example of why the Democratic Party keeps failing on messaging, even though their issues are more popular to the American people. And even though we have a Republican Party, okay, that it was led by somebody whose uh, supporters attacked the Capitol on January 6th, and still they're behind in messaging. Uh, Terry, uh, or Jason, I'm sorry. One, <laughs> Terry McAuliffe, he's not here. Uh, Jason, one thing that Terry said, which rang true with me, and maybe it shows that I'm... Uh, a practitioner of a different kind of politics. He said at one time, the, the key issue in this race is going to be factor is going to be turnout, 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 right? We get our people out. And that's always been the what Democrats believe. The higher the turnout, the better for them. There was record turnout in this election. Didn't work again. It, that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, McAuliffe got, you know, an astounding number of votes, um, you know, the, compared to what he got, you know, the first time that he won yeah. uh, a, few, a few years back. Uh, you know, the, the the turnout was through the roof. Access was easy. I mean, the, the, a, a couple of folks, uh, you know, have, have mused that, you know, perhaps this would put 
uh, Republicans at ease that when, you know, instead of trying to prevent people from voting or making it more difficult to vote, Virginia is a case study that when you make it easier to vote, you can still win. I mean, I will, we'll see about that. Uh, but, but, you know, this is the thing their turnout was through the roof and it was easy and access was there and, and, and nobody was turned away and, and Terry McAuliffe and, and the entire democratic slate got beat. Uh, and again, it is because they are, as Lauren said, they're behind on messaging. They, they have the issues. At, if, you, if you just look at polling, they have the issues behind them and they're unable to communicate it. They would much rather argue uh, about, you know, the, the specifics of like, no, this isn't actually this case in this one, you know, particular uh, set of circumstances where, you know, Glenn Youngkin and the Republican Party are, are you know, basically memifying the electorate uh, and, and, and getting support. Uh, Democrats are much more interested in being right than winning. Uh, Lauren, I'll come back to you as the Virginia resident here. Had the you know, Congress, the House today, as we speak, is beginning to try to pass today, this Friday, the two infrastructures bills, the Build Back Better bill and the bipartisan bill, had both of those passed, would it have made a difference? Do you no, believe? I don't. I don't think it would have made a difference. I know a lot is made of that. I'm sure Team McAuliffe will try to make it seem like it was Joe Biden that dragged them down. He did, of course, have that major sort of historic curse sitting there, which I know he beat before in 2013 with regard to getting elected the year after a. Uh, yeah. Democrat president. But but I just don't think that that's what people think about when they go into the voting booth. And in talking to voters at actual events, that's not what they're thinking about. Oh, if the infrastructure bill had passed, I would have voted for Terry McAuliffe. That's not, that's just not, now would it have helped? It probably would have helped. But as Jason just said, the turnout, right? The turnout mm-hmm. was quite good. And interestingly, if you look at the turnout, by the way, the other two people, and this is another reason I don't think it would have made any difference. The other two people who were on the ticket with Terry McAuliffe, Paula Ayala, who was running for lieutenant governor, and Mark Herring, who was a eight-year, you know, two-term attorney general, got more votes than Terry McAuliffe. So, I mean, uh, what happened was Glenn Youngkin ran a superior campaign, and anyone yeah. watching up close could see it. Yeah, absolutely. Alex, let's go north a little bit to New Jersey. Um, I saw this morning that the pollster for Monmouth University, uh, Patrick Murray, uh, issued a public apology today because six days before the election, uh, he said that Phil Murphy, the incumbent, uh, was 11 points ahead. Uh, how'd they get it so wrong in New Jersey? Uh, well, it's a, unfortunately an ongoing story about the difficulty of polling in this day and age. I mean, the, the fundamental thing is people just don't pick up their phones like they used to. And uh, we have cell phones, which are, are difficult. So this is a... a, a crisis for polling. The, the polling in Virginia was actually pretty good. Um, I don't know what happened in New Jersey, except my only assumption is that the expectations were so strongly uh, in favor across the board that that Phil Murphy was just going to cakewalk to victory um, that, you know, I, I don't know, but maybe he got some numbers and he thought these this can't be right and, and you know, went back to weighting things differently or, or adjusting his uh, turnout what, models. Right. Was there, was there any overriding issue that worked against Murphy? Uh, I mean, people will point to taxes, they'll point to some local things. But I think when you have um, these two states with different sets of issues moving in similar directions by similar margins, I think you just have to assume this is a national 
wave that is building. Um, and you have things that happen, like the the very powerful uh, Senate president, state Senate president in New Jersey, appears to be losing his race to a truck driver who spent $153 on his campaign, half of which went to Dunkin' Donuts for his volunteers. So- <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, as as a as a strategist put it to me yesterday, when you have bags of meat winning elections just because they have the right partisan letter next to their name, that's that's just a wave building. That's not about issues. That's not about you know th- those things all matter on the margins, a, a few points here or there. But what put Phil Murphy in danger in the first place, I think, is just this broader backlash to Democrats. And uh, I, I think the New Jersey result is almost scarier. I mean, yes, Phil Murphy won, but the fact that it got that close when none, nobody expected that it should have been. I mean, this is this is New Jersey we're talking about. Uh, that, I think, is, is really scary because it just means that anybody with a D next to their name is in trouble now. Yeah. Uh, for the record, by the way, I saw this morning that the truck driver has now admitted that he spent actually a total of $2,300. Uh, <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> And that's still a lot of donuts. <laughs> well, uh, so Alex, you touched on a couple of times now uh, what this all means going forward, which is really the question everybody is uh, is considering and worried about. Uh, let's jump into that. But uh, first, let's jump into a quick break here uh, on today's roundtable. Uh, and we'll be back with Lauren Burke and Jason Dick and Alex Seitzwald in just a couple of seconds. Today's roundtable on the Bill Press Pod is brought to you by the Laborers International Union of North America, or LIUNA, as they call themselves. Under the leadership of President Terry O'Sullivan, over 500,000 strong, very active, and leading the way in the construction industry, uh, already rebuilding what infrastructure they can, ready to rebuild all the rest of it once Congress gets its act together. Active in the energy field as well. Uh, in the new area of um, wind turbines or solar panels, as well as the old-fashioned pipelines, and laborers also among America's public employees, particularly in the healthcare sector. Layuna.org is their website. Check it out. We thank the Laborers Union members of the United States for their great work and for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. 
Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back on the Bill Press Pod with today's roundtable on this Friday, November 5. Alex Seitzwald from NBC News, Jason Dick from uh, Roll Call, and Lauren Burke. Uh, from Black Press USA and The Guardian. Uh, so, Jason, look forward. Uh, some people are already saying, in fact, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the House, said, uh, this is it. We're going to take over the House. This proves we're going to take over the House next year and probably win 63 votes. Um, <laughs> is this that bad news for Democrats? I, I mean... Certainly, you know, as as you know, as Alex, you know, has stated, you know, the, the historical trends point toward that. That the you know the the majority party, you know, the president's party tends to lose seats. Uh, sometimes they lose them quite heavily. Uh, seat, you know, two thousand ten elections. Uh, you know, the, the the first election, first national election. I I mean, I think that we're in a very odd <laughs> um, historical moment. I mean, we have. Um, you know, I feel like in the last election in 2020, Republicans really maxed out in a lot of the opportunities they had uh, in getting as close as they are, you know, where they basically became within about five seats of the majority, uh, which was very unexpected, it caught a lot of us by surprise last year. But you know, now we've got a redistricting cycle, so we don't know what is going to happen there. That could be very uh, perilous for a, a lot of Democrats, particularly because Republicans control the process. So certainly the Republicans, at least at the House level, have a distinct advantage. But I mean, these things are so close. I mean, like the 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 in, in the Senate, who knows? You know, it's it's 50 50. Uh, you know, that's just one one illness, one sickness, one death, one, you know, uh, change that, that could happen before the election. So I, I think that if, if Democrats take away any lessons from this, it's that, you know, have, have a message, uh, you know, like, <laughs> um, you know, run on something. Uh, and, and I think that one thing that is going to be a little different this time around with, with the elections, as opposed to the Obamacare, um, situation in, in 2010 is that, you know, if, if, Democrats are able to pass both of these, you know, uh, big bills. And it looks like at least the bipartisan infrastructure bill will pass today and head its way to the president. Um, and then eventually get something, some, something along the lines of the package that they have on the build back better, which would include paid family leave, you know, the, the ability of Medicare to, uh, negotiate on some drug prices and so forth. They're not going to run away from that. I mean, like they mm -hmm. ran away, you know, in a hurry from from the Affordable Care Act. Uh, even though you know the, a lot of it has and it has become a very popular law, I don't see them running away from these kind of uh, popular programs. You know, and and so that's going to be really distinct. And also, if the pandemic is on on the wane, it continues to be on the wane. That creates an entirely new situation too. You know, the the Bureau of Labor Statistics today, is, you know, it's a it was a much better jobs report. So, I just think we're in a weird situation. It's hard to tell. It's going to be close regardless, though. Right. Uh, speaking of the jobs report, it is uh, five hundred and thirty-one thousand new jobs for the month of October. So, Lauren, picking up on that, if in fact uh, they get these two bills, well, let's just put it this way: 
the, the midterms are a year away. I mean, that is a lifetime in politics. So there is, not saying that they will, but there is time for Democrats to turn this around, isn't there? Yeah, there is. There definitely is. I mean, I have a sense definitely sitting here that Alex is going to be right, you know, and this thing is going to be what it is next year. But I do think it matters who you run uh, and, and how this works. In Virginia, where they had flipped the House from uh, uh, from Democrat to Republican, the margins of victory were extremely close. Uh, but I think the bigger lesson for the Democrats just goes back to, you know, they do a lot. They pass a lot. The CARES Act passed. American Rescue passes. You've got billions of dollars moving around. You've got poverty dropping. And But if you can't message these things and you can't get people to understand what you've done, the work you've done, and what it has actually met on a, meant on a very granular, real, uh, you know, dollars and cents level, none of the work you're doing matters. And I do think it matters that Joe Biden is not exactly the great communicator. I think the last press conference was 100 days ago before the other day. And, you know, there needs to be some sort of really, I think, come to Jesus moment about communications and how they can get their messages out about what they do. Because I think the Democratic Party has done a lot. And the Republicans, frankly, have become a party that has gone away from policy and is just sort of, Mm -hmm. you know, doing uh, messaging around Trump and, you know, having Trump come back, not really doing anything and yet getting away with it because they're just so much better at messaging. So I don't know. uh, Obviously, no one knows what's going to happen uh, next year. But to your point, it, it, it really, it is so far away that you never know what can happen as we learned on Tuesday night. Yeah. So Alex, I want to ask you about the role of Donald Trump post Virginia, post New Jersey. Um, because some people, I mean, Trump, of course, claimed credit for both states, right? Um, <laughs> shocking, shockingly, right. Uh, but there are several stories today. Uh, Niall Standage writes in the, our good friend, part of the roundtable, writes in this morning's Hill, uh, why this is bad for Trump uh, and pointing out that there's a new post-Trump strategy maybe, which is not to totally condemn Trump, but at least keep your distance from Trump. And that's the winning strategy, which means Trump's influence is actually weaker. How do you read it? I, I think that's right, or at least there's there's truth to that. Um, and I think there's a way to read Virginia as sort of a rejection of Trump, that, that Terry McAuliffe was the one who was talking about Trump and that voters were just kind of done with him and just don't mm-hmm. want to think about him anymore. And Youngkin seemed like the the guy who did not want to reignite those uh, kind of wars. And, you know, if, if even during the height of the Trump era, if you talk to, of course, Republican operatives, but even I would go canvassing with these candidates sometimes and you talk to on the voter on the doors and people who kind of liked him, but would still wish he would just dial it back like 20 percent. You know, there are very few people who loved him on the Twitters constantly. Uh, so I think we're at this strange moment where the Democrats need Donald Trump more than the Republicans do. Uh, mm-hmm. If Donald Trump goes away tomorrow, Republicans would be pretty happy with that. You know, the, the, the Youngkin's victory has shown that they can still have the crazy high turnout in the rural areas uh, that they got with Donald Trump. But without him there, you can still you can peel back some suburban voters. And uh, for McAuliffe, you know, he, he tried to make Trump a base mobilizing issue, which it, it might be, but uh, it wasn't enough And uh, without him on the ballot. So Democrats need to find something new to do. But at, at this moment, 
I, th- I think that, you know, for in terms of who can turn out their base without Trump on the ballot, Republicans proved they can and Democrats proved or at least uh, there's evidence that Democrats can't without more. Uh, there's also evidence, Jason, that Trump is not going away. Uh, yesterday at Mar-a-Lago, <laughs> uh, there was a, a gathering of what was called the Trump government in exile. Uh, <laughs> present there were, in addition to Trump, of course, Mark Meadows and Kellyanne Conway and Larry Kudlow and Jared Kushner, Lindsey Graham, Matt Gates, Lauren Bobbert. Uh, Jason, he's running. Oh, I, I think that I don't think that there's any doubt. I mean, I, I would be surprised if he does not run. Um, but and and he, you know, I am shocked at how well behaved he was, so to speak, um, in in these in this in this last election. But one thing that would be surprising, even more surprising, is if that continued, because you know, uh, you know controversy and the public spotlight and adulation that is is trump's oxygen and so the more that he inserts himself into the process the you know that that that's where he feels comfortable and i think it's going to be you know a really fine balancing act for i mean certainly like you know the the folks that you mentioned like matt gates i mean they love having him around they love you know like that they sort of bask in that and that and you know but like the the youngkin wing, if you will, of of the party uh, who wants to put on their sweater vests and go to farmers markets and talk to people and get their votes, is not going to be uh, particularly thrilled uh, about that. I think the best thing I think we would agree the best thing that happened to Glenn Youngkin is that Trump did not show up in Penn, Virginia the way he desperately wanted to. Somebody somebody talked him out of it uh, at any rate, which was good for Youngkin and bad for. For Terry McAuliffe. Okay, I mentioned as we speak, uh, members of the panel, uh, Congress has uh, come back in session. The House has this morning uh, to what Nancy Pelosi would like to see happen is to pass both infrastructure bills. First, the Build Back Better bill. And once they have everybody on board for that, then pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which already passed the Senate. Look, uh, we don't know what's going to happen, but how important is this in terms of what we've been talking about, uh, Joe Biden's agenda and Democrats getting their act together? Lauren? Well, I mean, I think obviously it's important for his agenda to move forward. And if it fails, it, it looks like a massive failure. But I do think in general, you know, Biden has done so much already. It's just amazing that that is not in some way, uh, you know, I wouldn't say enough. I mean, it's never enough when you're dealing with a global pandemic that killed 700,000 people, but he had to deal with that and all of these uh, bills that that came after. I mean, I think just because of the nature of the way that these issues are covered, the horse horse race, who's up, who's down, you know, if he, if he doesn't win it, it looks like this major failure and then everybody piles on and his approval ratings get worse. It's important. I mean, you can't argue it's not important, but I sometimes wonder, you know, in the grand scheme of a four-year presidency, exactly how important. Going into 2022, obviously, they want it to be a positive thing that they've done all of these uh, uh, big, big, you know, bills and got in the past. But uh, I don't know. It's hard to tell uh, how much people, real people, uh, really sort of see these things in the same way that we see them inside the beltway, as I suspect that they don't necessarily see them in the same way, unless these things really impact their lives. And, um, 
That's a, you know, obviously a complicated question. So Jason, you're covering the Hill every day. Uh, isn't it also true though, that if, if at least if the build back better bill passes today in the house and progressives have said they're for it now, they're, they're comfortable with what's in it and the, and the amount of money that's in it, it's going to change. Joe Manchin's going to change it in the Senate anyway. Right. It, it seems that way. I mean, the, I, I think that the, you know, something, you know, Something sort of changed in the last week where progressives were, you know, perhaps sensing that uh, if they didn't do this now, they may like not have a chance at all. And mm-hmm. again, just one small part of not small, but one part of the Build Back Better bill, you know, the the paid leave, paid medical and family leave yeah. four weeks. Just if they just passed that, it would be the single largest entitlement like change since Medicare and Medicaid. You know, I mean, like this is a generational type of of change that we're seeing. So, I mean, I think they realize, all right, we got what we can get. Um, it is going to go to the Senate. You know, we're God knows how long it's going to take, you know, to, to get something out of, of the Senate. Probably, I would guess closer to Christmas, you know, in, yeah. in De- December. Um, but, you know, there that is a tangible thing that they will have that they can, if they choose to message on. Right. Um, it, it, it is a big deal. And even if it comes down in size, uh, which it invariably, you know, will be altered, uh, then it's still a big you know, advancement of their own agenda that they can run on. And also the bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill is nothing to sneeze at either. This is almost a no. trillion dollars. Uh, right. So that's going to be on its way to the president soon. Right. So that, that's, these are big, this is a big stuff. These are, I mean, we've been sort of enamored with the sausage making, but these are huge things that are about to happen. These are big things that deliver for working class Americans. Congressman Tim Ryan, who of course is running uh, for Senate in Ohio, um, made a pretty passionate speech on the House floor the other day. Uh, Alex, let's listen up. Tim Ryan. This bill is about how do we get money in the pockets of people. Uh, universal preschool, that's one year less of child care that a family has to pay. That's money in their pockets. Capping child care at 7% of your income, that's money in your pockets. Helping seniors with glasses or hearing aids, that's money in their pockets. A tax cut, finally, for working people, not for the top 1%, but for families, that's money in their pockets. So, Alex, here's what gets me. Uh, Democrats are for all of those things. The Republicans have unanimously, uh, uh, every last one of them, opposed that bill, no matter what's in it, no matter how big it is. Why, Why are we paying so much attention to the infighting among Democrats and not pointing out the Republicans are just not even participating, right? Not even debating it, not even willing to vote for anything. It's, it's a good question. I mean, I, I think two thoughts um, on that. One is uh, it's sort of the nature of the, the news media. And I, I often say this to you know people who complain uh, that three out of the four letters of the word news are new. Uh, so there's always going to be you know an emphasis on what's new and what's happening in the moment. And that's that Democrats mm-hmm. are not fighting. And it's sort of taken for granted that Republicans are uh, opposed to all of this. But I do think the party, Democratic Party has not done a great job of talking about what's actually in this thing. It's all been about the top line and about the the process. And uh, you know, I follow this stuff pretty closely 
for a living, and I have had trouble keeping track of the ins oh. and outs of where everything is going. Bingo. We all have. We all have. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And it's. I mean, even even what to call it is a challenge because it's like it started as <laughs> an infrastructure bill, but now there's like there's childcare and healthcare, and it's a human infrastructure. But so that's why we, you know with this build back better because it's it really is just the Biden agenda. It's just a, a vehicle to stuff full of all of these different programs that don't necessarily have a lot to do with each other. Um, you know, all are important and big uh, that are all getting in there. So that's a, that is a messaging challenge, I think, for Democrats, but obviously more important to get the policy passed and then, you know, figure out how to message it later. Uh, the second thought, which is, I think, speaks to a lot of what we've been talking about this morning, is I think Republicans have gotten better at realizing that politics these days is as much about a lifestyle brand almost as anything else. It's it's what kind of person you are. You know, we've sorted ourselves so cleanly into these uh, partisan tribes where what kind of music you listen to, where you live, what kind of clothes you wear, what kind of car you drive, um, you know, even whether you buy Goya beans or not, is <laughs> uh, th- th- all sorted into these partisan uh, lines. So I think Republicans have realized that you don't actually have to do that much as long as you just keep the messaging like I'm your kind of person, I'm a good kind mm-hmm. of person. Um, then the, the actual policy, which is supposedly what this is all about uh, is kind of become secondary. Yeah. Alas, alas, I would add, but uh, cannot disagree. Great panel, guys, uh, and great insights into this week and what happened and what it all means. Uh, Thanks to Lauren Burke. Thanks to Jason Dick. And thanks to Alex Seitzwald. But before you go, of course, I'm always curious about the one story of the week that captured your attention above all else, at least made you stop and think or laugh or cry. <laughs> uh, where do we start? Lauren, what caught you? What got yes, you? Yes, I'm going to give a shout out to two uh, reporters at the Virginia Mercury, uh, Graham Muma and Ned Oliver, who have been writing about uh, two state senators who are going to be very powerful in Virginia. That would uh-huh. be Joe Morrissey. <laughs> They're basically going to be the Joe Mansions of Virginia. Oh. Joe Morrissey and Chap Peterson. Chap Peterson represents Fairfax and Morrissey represents Petersburg. They will be now because there is a Republican, there will be a Republican lieutenant governor of Virginia Senate in the Republican House. They will be extremely influential. And I thought that the reporting on that, which is ongoing, was quite good. Good. Thank you. I'll check it out. Uh, Jason. I went uh, full literary dork uh, in, in my <laughs> in, in my uh, readings this, oh, tell, this week. Do tell, um, do tell. So the, the New Yorker has uh, th- this story about uh, Claude Fredericks, who uh, was a, uh, a Bennington College professor. He died in 2013 at the age of 89, uh, and he was contemporaries with people mm-hmm. like James Merrill and uh, Bernard Malamud and Anna East Neen and so forth. And he was sort of famous for having rarely or never published anything. Um, and his, but he did keep a diary uh, and the, the Getty uh, mm-hmm. museum in Los Angeles has acquired almost all of it. Uh, it is, it runs 65,000 pages. <laughs> um, and this writer, this poor writer at the New Yorker <laughs> has, has, you know, kind of closely read about 5,000 pages of it and then done sort of a deep dive into Frederick's life. Uh, and it's just kind of fascinating. I mean, it, it, I, as I was reading this story, I was thinking of the Charlie Kaufman uh, movie, Synecdoche, uh, New York, where, where he constructs a life-size, uh, um, you know, uh, 
play uh, that, that mm-hmm. is of life-size proportions. And that's what this journal uh, sort of sounds like. It's every excruciating and boring and dull detail of this guy's life. And some mm-hmm. of the great, you know, sort of things too. And I, I just got sort of wrapped up in it. And and uh, I mentioned that I, I used to be a teacher. Uh, it, it made me feel like an academic again and also made me grateful that I'm not an academic anymore. <laughs> uh, well, that story, I must admit, is right on my desk. And I want to get to it after I finish the story before it in this week's New Yorker about the uh, teams of migrant workers uh, who have chased big storms and clean up after big storms. Uh, Very interesting article as well. Um, So, uh, Alex, literary or political, or where'd you end up? Uh, On on an issue that I I try not to talk about in public because it's so divisive, but Uh a fascinating story on, on by Mark Tracy in the New York Times Magazine called Inside the Unraveling of American Zionism about how a uh, newer generation of uh, American Jews, mostly on the left, are have this complicated relationship with Israel uh, that is different from older generations and how it's creating this really kind of um, interesting crossroads and, and crisis point in a long way for um, American Jewish institutions and really the the future of you know american israeli uh, relations wow yeah that's powerful stuff so um i my story relates to something that happened this week i find unbelievable in dallas texas on november the 2nd uh i must say if i <laughs> well we all know you're going bill <laughs> right okay there you go I mean, if I put out word today on Twitter that Jesus Christ is going to appear on 8th Street on, in Cap- on Capitol Hill at 11.30 next Tuesday, I don't think anybody would show up. But QAnon put out the call that JFK and his son, John Kennedy Jr., were going to show up at Daly Plaza, where Kennedy was assassinated. We thought he was, uh, allegedly, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they were going to they were going to both show up at 11:30 a.m. and President Kennedy was going to anoint his son John Kennedy Jr. to be Donald Trump's vice president, and they were going to take back the White House. I would think nobody would show up, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of QAnon followers did show up at Daily Plaza uh, at for 11:55. It was I'm sorry by 12:30. JFK had not shown up, so they recited the Pledge of Allegiance together, thinking that would prompt him to <laughs> appear, and he still didn't appear. But I just cannot believe these people are batshit crazy, if I must say, on my own podcast. And there's a member of Congress, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's a QAnon member. Got, what does this say? I, I, I don't I don't get it. Anyhow, anybody want to comment? <laughs> 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 what but, what what could be added? <laughs> what, it, what what could we add? <laughs> it, it, it happened. Oh my God! There it is. Well, on that note, we will leave you all and thank uh, Lauren Burke, host of the Burke File podcast and writer for Black Press USA and the Guardian, Jason Dick, deputy editor of CQ Roll Call and host of Political Theater podcast, and Alex Seitzwald, senior digital politics reporter for NBC News. Thank you, panelists, and thank you all for listening. Busy week, and we'll see what happens 
later today when the House finally gets around to voting on the Build Back Better and the BIF, the infrastructure bill. Uh, meanwhile, take care of yourself. We'll be back next Tuesday, so uh, come back, come back for that next session of the Bill Press Pod. <laughs>